What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome to another week of Big Digital Energy. I'm back and rocking and rolling for Richmond Police Department. <laughs> Good I show. heard that you guys heard that you guys miss me, Chuck. What's with the uh, the the bright pink hat? You've been giving uh, spring break vibes here in the <laughs> office with that. What's the deal? The fuchsia. Um, <laughs> I actually got fan mail this week. A rather attractive young lady sent in that uh, a note that said, "I like a man that wears pink." So I will wear this pink <laughs> hat till my dying days. <laughs> for it's not coming off my head ever. Any of our listeners, please do me a favor and don't gas Chuck up. Save me from having <laughs> to put up with uh, the second order effects that come from that. But this is like the worst big head moment in BDE history because the Richmond police demanded that you come back because they thought Jake was boring and I get fan mail on my big cat. <laughs> yeah. We're on top yeah. of the world. <laughs> All right. We had a, uh, it kind of uneventful. It's kind of weird. Kind of uneventful week in energy, but also a little bit eventful yesterday um, in Texas with uh, ERCOT sending out messages saying that uh, you need to restrict usage of um, electricity consumption. That they were expecting rolling blackouts. Uh, we didn't end up having blackouts, I don't believe. But let's start off there because let me let me throw some numbers that. at you real quick, Colin. This is end of the year 2021, so we had about 57 gigawatts of natural gas fired generation on ERCOT, and ERCOT basically the grid, and it serves about 90 percent of Texas. We had just over 28 gigawatts of wind, eight, just over 8 gigawatts of solar, and then we've got, of course, some nuclear and some coal and all that. So you basically have a grid that's 30% wind. And when ERCOT did their load forecasting, they're sitting there going, holy shit, it's going to be hot as all get out. All the air conditioners are going to be on. And then they go look through their supply. Which isn't abnormal for Texas. Right. <laughs> it's kind of what we do here. But College Station was 111 degrees yesterday, um, or on Sunday. But anyway, so they did that, and then when they did their forecast of supply, you had an unusually high amount of natural gas-fired uh, generation that was just down for maintenance, like regularly scheduled maintenance, and the wind just wasn't going to blow. They thought only 8% of wind generating power was going to even be available so that's why they were sitting there going guys there's nothing we can do about this yeah eight percent of nameplate capacity on wind which i got on twitter yesterday because i knew twitter was going to be blowing up when i saw that um that announcement from ERCOT. and you get on twitter first thing i see is people blaming bitcoin mining like yes. oh yeah increasing bitcoin mining is a great idea to mine fake internet money and i'm like jesus fucking christ like it's not bitcoin mining that's putting you know, maybe someday it puts added stress on the grid, but right now, I mean, it's not, that's not what's doing it. And then you completely ignore the uh, faults of intermittent energy sources like wind. And so I tweeted that out and then people were like, oh, you're attacking renewables. I'm like, no, I'm just saying like, hey, you know, you and I had a great conversation about this yesterday and we should actually. Let's try to recreate. Let's it. try to recreate it and talk about it because a lot of, the problem that I see with the, with the the renewables crowd on Twitter is that when they talk about the cost of wind and solar, they talk about it in individual parts 
or silos. And what I always relate it to, the, the analogous thing to oil and gas was half cycle economics. And when I first learned about half cycle economics and oil and gas, like I couldn't believe that this is the way that the industry operated because for me, when I think of running a business and as a bootstrap business, you have to think about full cycle right. <laughs> economics because that's what matters at the end of the day. And so you'd always see these oil and gas companies, you know, tell, hey, we have 40% IRRs. And then you'd find out that that was on half cycle economics that backed out, you know, land acreage uh, costs and things of that GNA, nature. GNA, everything that it takes right. <laughs> to run an oil and gas From company. this moment forward, <laughs> this is what it's going to cost And us. so... I think that you see elements of that same thing happening happening in renewables when people talk about you know the cost of electricity um, being cheap. They don't take into consideration the full cycle, and what I mean by that is you have to have backup generation for intermittent energy sources. And some people they get abrasive when you say that, but that's just the truth. Some some days the wind doesn't blow. Like yesterday, you yeah. know, you're running at 8% of nameplate capacity on wind generation. The wind wasn't there. Maybe there's clouds. The sun's not there. You cannot control those things, you know, and we can try to estimate over time and smooth out um, projections. But at the end of the day, you have to have backup generating capacity, which comes mostly in the form of nat gas and coal. Now the problem becomes, think that you're a nat gas peaker plant. Why are you incentivized to invest capital to maintain or build out more infrastructure to be this backstop for renewables? You have misaligned incentives. You're not incentivized to do that. And so now it becomes this kind of snowball effect of where we're building out renewables in a very aggressive manner. We're not keeping up in a linear fashion with either maintenance or build out of backup uh, generation capacity. And that's how you end up in the situation that we're in now, or it seems like Texas is being regressive. I don't remember having blackouts as a kid growing up. And now all of a sudden we're a resource rich state, very resource rich, and we can't fucking keep the lights on. Well, and, you know, we're Texans, so one, we ought to be able to run a grid because we're the hub of the energy business. The way I say kind of the same thing you just said is we have a free market when it comes to power generation. You and I can go build power generating assets tomorrow, and we can choose to do coal, nuclear, whatever. The issue is, is and I don't know the subsidies well enough from the federal government on income taxes, but I know that I've been pitched deals where it's like, hey, Chuck, you'll get all your money back in tax credits if you build this wind farm. And so if the wind farm makes any money, then you'll make money on it. And so what you have is you have wind farms being built that tax credits give some or all of the money back. And you're right that crowds out the natural gas peak or why am I going to spend it? Oh, and by the way, John Kerry says I'm not in business in 10 years too. I got that direct message from a power guy saying, why am I going to build another one of these? I don't know if it's going to be around in, in five to 10 years. And so exactly what I was saying, you're not incentivized, right? Yeah, and I so, think the, the point of the subsidized uh, tax credits is another big thing too, because you know one of the main complaints that you hear from people in the renewable space is, um, just the lack of transmission infrastructure and being able to connect assets to the grid. Why would you ever build 
energy assets that you can't connect, that you can't get connectivity to. You know, there shouldn't be ever a reason why you have stranded renewable projects right. in the first place. But the reason that you do is because they're incentivized by um, tax credits, right? And so they're actually making money by building these out, and they really don't give a shit if there's uh, connectivity or not. That's why I have friends that are mining Bitcoin off of wind farms and, you know, Iowa or wherever they're at yeah, because they have no, yeah, they're stranded. Yeah. (laughs) Like there's literally no other use for them. So So I think that the tweak that needs to happen just so the economics of the project match and, and quote unquote, make it fair is renewables need to pay some sort of penalty when they don't deliver. That can either be cash. It could be, Hey, you guys have to have uh, thermal delivery of power for six to eight hours if you go down and, you know, maybe it's diesel gen sets or whatever. There needs to be some sort of penalty if they don't deliver. And quite fairness, and in fairness on hydrocarbon-based stuff, we can all discuss the amount, but pollution should have a cost of some sort. Because, I mean, even the most, the, the newest, best natural gas-fired generation has some pollution and there's a cost to that so, so if are you, you implying Im- there should be a carbon tax is that what you're saying i, I, I don't know that i'm going that far polarizing I, know, topic. I, know, I don't know <laughs> that i'm going that that far but there there should be there should be something to that effect and and then just let them come i actually agree with you on a theoretical basis like on paper i think that i could make a case for a carbon tax the problem is, is that, you know, that shit gets abused. The slippery slope. Yeah, it's the, the, slippery the whole slippery slope. slope. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyways, I don't want to get into that on that show. I'm going to have people. Up but in the anyway, comments, we uh, were we we were saved yesterday because one load management. I mean, ERCOT going out saying, hey, everybody, reduce your load. People reduce their load. There was more wind than they anticipated. And we had lower temperatures statewide, basically because it rained in Houston and central Texas. But yeah, outside of that, we would have had our blackout. And on the stranded energy thing, look, I'm a I'm a equal opportunity uh, critic when it comes to energy infrastructure, and I don't want uh, people in renewables to think that I'm just picking on stranded wind and uh, solar projects because I saw a tweet, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, someone said talked to an oil and gas operator that spent. Uh, $200 million drilling and completing wells and can't get permitting um, for their pipelines. And the majority of the comments are like, why the fuck would you complete your wells if you didn't have connectivity to pipelines or permits in place? It's the same thing. Why would you sink that capital? You know, at least you can drill the wells, but don't complete them. Why would you spend all the money drilling and completing when you don't have connectivity? It's the same thing, except in renewables, you actually get paid for it um, yeah. through subsidies and unfortunately when you're an oil and gas you don't get those subsidies so you're just uh, kind of not smart um there's a great comment here um from nate zimmerman said he would like to know how much the population increase in texas in the last 20 years and compare it with infrastructure development uh broken into fossil and renewables and this brings up another point too something i realized yesterday you get on ERCOT's website they got a really nice dashboard with data and information broken out in real time. And so you can actually see uh, real-time power generation from wind and solar only. They don't have nat gas, they don't have coal, and they don't have nuclear. And I tweeted out, out of genuine curiosity, why does ERCOT only have wind and solar generation broken out on the homepage dashboard and not any hydrocarbons? 
it doesn't make sense. They have the data. You can go find the data. You got to go into the bowels of ERCOT's website and pull the CSV. But why do they not make that information available to all the citizens of Texas? It really seems that there's something there around virtue signaling of like, oh, look how much uh, wind and solar generation we have. But I want to see real time. Where is what's the what's the power uh, makeup at this specific hour? And to to Nate's question, I don't have his exact answer, but I was spending a lot of time on ERCOT yesterday. And if you look at thermal generation, you know, so the hydrocarbons, nuclear uh, and the like, basically that amount of generation with new ads and things going offline has stayed flat over about the last 15 years. All the incremental growth has been in wind and solar. So the growth that Nate's talking about to deal with that population is all in interruptibles. And here's <clears throat> here's the, I brought this up and even my friends, some of my friends in renewables um, agree with this is that we're building out, especially wind, um, solar not as much, but particularly wind in Texas, we're building it too aggressively. And the thing is, is that wind and solar don't work without commercial battery capacity, which we just don't have yet. And I don't know when we will have it, but that's just, I mean, that's facts that you need battery storage uh, for intermittents to be reliable. And we don't have that yet. And so it's not so much, I think all energy is good. I think that we should be building out wind and solar, but I think the main issue to be concerned about is the rate at which we're building it and backup generation uh, just isn't keeping up with it. You know, they're not moving along the same, the same plane of growth. Yeah, I got one good direct message. I won't say who it's from because I didn't clear with him or her. It's an Anon account, but says we're basically in a tweener. Do we light a pile of capital on fire to build enough renewables that it's not an issue? You know, if you had solar and wind everywhere, hopefully you could kind of bridge this tweener thing we're talking. Or do we try to build 10 gigawatts of nat gas that the feds are trying to regulate out of existence? That's, ex thus, that's, exa that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. exactly our question. And so, Which, when you frame it like that, this comes back to energy density, right? And what resources do we have available to us? Because, yeah, we could cover the entire fucking state in solar panels or wind turbines. And that way, when they only run at 8% of nameplate capacity, at least that 8% is enough <laughs> right. for us to live off of. But now it, it just becomes, um, it, it's not practical and it's not pragmatic. And that's what we really, that that's the crux of the of the issue. That, that, that's right. And, and for all the Democrats that say GOP is screwing up the grid and all the GOP people that say, well, at least Texas's grid's better than California's and look what the Dems have done there. I don't even know that it's a political issue. It's literally that right there is we just need to make a decision of how do we want to. And, and my solution is what I said earlier. Let's try to get the economics more aligned and then just let them compete. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's what so. I think at the end of the day, if you're an energy producer, you want a fair playing field, right? And that's DRW's take on it is just let's get rid of all the subsidies. Let's level the playing field and just let the chips fall where that's, they may. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's I agree with that. So all anyways, right. what else? Uh, story, story number two. This is just a little nuanced story. So I don't even know if it's worthy of a lot of time, but it just sticks in my craw. So. Chenier has 62. Sticks in your what? Craw. 
What does that mean? It just, you know. At it first bugs I, me. At first I thought you said like sticks in my crotch and then I was like, <laughs> no, you said craw. I just still don't even know what that means. <laughs> You've never heard that expression? No, I guess before okay. my before my time. Back in the day. <laughs> the uh no, so it bugs me. How's that? This All bugs right. me. So Chenier has sixty two gas fired turbines and there's a new EPA regulation coming out that's gonna take effect in August where they're not going to be allowed to operate those 62 gas-fired turbines. Okay, I don't know the minutia of how bad those turbines actually are when it comes to pollution, but is this really the time when Europe needs LNG that we want to not give a waiver to that? So that's problem number one. Problem number two is the EPA hadn't ruled. It's freaking July. I mean, yeah. how is a business supposed to run? They've applied and said, hey, can we get a waiver on this? And and they haven't even responded. And so for all the people out there that say, well, the government really doesn't matter when it comes to energy. Yes, it does. This is a small little example. But anyway, I'll get yeah. off my soapbox. Well, I don't know if you saw this or not, but New York Times uh, two days ago released this really good article and podcast on Sharif Suki who was the uh, the founder and former CEO of uh, Chenier, and then after Chenier um, went and founded uh, Telluram. And a couple interesting things here. One, he wasn't in the oil and gas industry. Um, he actually owned a restaurant, and this restaurant was the last place that Nicole Simpson Mezzaluna. was at yeah. the night that she was murdered. And anyways, all the media attention and everything that came with that, um, apparently, you know, he just couldn't stand the way people were treating it. And then anyways, sold the restaurant and then was just kind of like, okay, what am I going to get into next? And apparently, I think he had some investment banking background as yeah, well. Yeah, he was a banker and then he started that chain. Yeah. Real quick, one funny story there. So when the OJ stuff happened, I was actually out in L.A., and the trial was going on, and they were talking about there's no way that, you know, from Mezzaluna to OJ's house to Nicole's townhome, all that, there's no way OJ did it because of the time. And, you know, they were talking, it's like 45-minute drive and all that. I drove all of that in like two minutes, and I stopped, and I peed, and I asked directions, <laughs> and I got a Coke and stuff. That stuff is all right together. Check, checks out here doing the uh, investigative <laughs> work, the real work. You know, they never found the knife. I'm yeah. just saying. And all right, we'll do a whole OJ Simpson <laughs> podcast. Let's save sometimes. that for save. Chuck Job. Okay. But anyways, he decides that he wants to get into oil and gas and really sees LNG as the future. And I think Chenier was founded, I don't know, around 2008 or something like that. Um, but was able to go raise. I mean, you built yeah, out it was LNG about receiving. It was about receiving so, LNG. So that's, that's, yeah, that's what we the story short. said because yeah. Before shale, you know, it was just you couldn't believe that we would become an, an exporter, right? And yeah. so building this LNG facility to receive LNG, and then shale takes off, and then all of a sudden, you know, he's got to raise something like $20 billion to retrofit this thing to become an LNG processing facility it's because it's much harder to actually process LNG than just to receive it. And so anyways, ends up uh, doing that, and then... Uh, 
him and uh, Carl Icahn get in a disagreement, which I've told you. It's like I don't never want Carl Icahn on a board of my company. <laughs> it seems like Carl Icahn has disagreements with everyone he works with um, and then goes and starts uh, Telluride, but was just absolute visionary when it came to uh, LNG. And so I thought, one, the story that New York Times did the podcast was really good, um, doing a profile on him, but I just thought it was uh, very, uh, very interesting how he made that transition from – the restaurant business having ties to the OJ Simpson right. case and then raising billions of dollars for LNG facilities. So I got one other story. So when Chenier was blowing and going and doing great, they moved out of their offices at 717 Texas. We at Kanye took uh, the um, took the sublease from them, and it was way below market. And later on, when Chenier wasn't doing well and was teetering on bankruptcy, GSO stepped in, gave them a loan, and that kind of kept them out of bankruptcy. And the important thing about that was it kept our lease in place because the second they declared bankruptcy, all the leases would be disposed of and stuff. And it was so far below market. So uh, we sent Dwight Scott, a, who's head of GSO, a bottle of champagne to say thank you for keeping our lease in <laughs> Thank in you place. for keeping our lease intact. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's but, awesome. Yeah, no, Chenier's been a uh, – uh, yeah. Okay, Brian, we uh, we picked up that Chenier was founded to build import terminals. Yeah. I've actually heard that the export facilities, he didn't re retrofit the import facilities. He built brand new facilities literally right next door yeah, to that export. Might, that might yeah, have, that might have been That's the case. That's logi yeah. logistically how it happened. Yeah. So. Um, I want to try to – so our we have an event in October called Fuse Igniting Energy and talks about energy tech across all the energy verticals. And we have Toby Rice coming and talking about uh, LNG. I think it would be so dope if we get Sheree Suki and uh, Toby Rice going back and forth on the future of LNG. Um, well, I talked so a big game that. on LinkedIn yesterday about being able to connect you, so hopefully <laughs> that will happen. I didn't know you were going to take me up on it. So. All right. Oil and gas stocks, let me throw some numbers at you. Throw if we look at, at large caps over the last month, down 30%. Small caps down 37%. Majors are down almost 20%. Over that same period, the near-month oil price is down 19%. Near-term gas price is down 28%. And this is what I find disconnected as all get out. The three-year oil strip is only down 8% over the last month. Yeah, so it's not like we have crazy backwardation. I mean, if you're down 8% long-term, this is why I don't own oil and gas stocks because there's such a disconnect between public equities and price and commodities. Trade to the front, month. Trade and, to the front, month. And there's month. a lot that goes yeah. into that, too, because you know every EMP has a different hedge book. They have different operations. Some companies are better at operating than others, and so... I see all these people talking about owning oil and gas stocks on Twitter. I'm like, yeah, fuck that. I have no, like, no desire at all to own oil and gas stocks. And then guess what? Like, you know, you think you do all this due diligence to pick the best operators, and you're down 30%, even though oil uh, and gas prices aren't down near as much. You know, it was interesting. Back when I was at Stevens, so this was like 100 years ago, but I bet it holds true today. I need to go update this. I took all the EMP companies that were publicly traded kind of in the mid-cap space, and I broke them into one, two, three. And that was my subjective ranking of management quality. So one was the best, three was the worst. And actually what you found was good management 
you you performed you you were up less in the bad times but you were also down less in the bad or you were up less in the good times and you were down less in the bad times so you were less volatile and then number three if oil stocks were up 40 percent and you were a crappy company you'd be up like 60 or 65. i mean so, that plays to like sandridge right i mean there's a lot of talk about sandridge on cover Twitter. your ears josh young <laughs> yeah. cover, and you know, cover your ears josh chris young bird. is a sand, sandridge fanboy you have chris bird who hates sandridge and i uh i tend to agree with uh, chris bird on this topic but you know they run raw unhedged and in good times you know good commodity prices i'm sure they're just absolutely crushing it but then you have a uh, 19% dip in commodity prices. <laughs> they, go, they go down right with it. So um, yeah, that was that was always the funny thing when oil prices came back. I was able to say, "Look, I'm smart again." All yeah, right. So Brian, uh, real quick, Brian said his impression is that the well-managed operators uh, over the mid to long term will be fine, but short term the market is still trying to figure itself out. I mean, DRW actually has a really good take on this: that oil stocks are the leading indicator. Uh, future predictor of recessions. So actually oil stocks crashing, even though demand for oil is on the rise, the commodity crashing is the best indicator. And he's got some historical data points. Yeah, that I haven't looked that. at the historical data of public equity performance, but I mean, there's a ton of data that, um, you know, oil prices are indicators of recessions. And so I imagine that you could take as long as the as long as the relationship between public equities and commodity prices has the same same relationship. I'm sure you can make that case over time yeah. that if the public equity prices drop, then it could be a indicator. But so, so, I mean, you look at what's happening. I mean, in tech, you're having 90% drawdowns on some of the biggest. Right. companies over the last decade i think that'd be a bigger indicator than some, <laughs> yeah, yeah. some oil prices Other than that but... is lincoln how was the play <laughs> all right so opining on things that we know nothing about is nothing new on bde Nord Stream one is down for the next day in the next 10 days for maintenance so the russians have you know shut it in clean the pipes do all the stuff they do every summer the question is do they turn it back on and that's what Europe sitting there, particularly Germany, is because I think Nord Stream One supplies all of Germans, the Germans' natural gas yeah. is sitting there because all hell could break loose if they decide not to, uh, to yeah. turn it back on. I mean, to your point, I don't know a lot about anything, so I'm just here for context and to provide funny uh, anecdotes. Yeah, that's <laughs> pretty much what I'm good for. Anyways, I pulled these uh, two headlines from CNBC. I should have uh, uploaded the clips, but I didn't think about this until just now. Um, but I sent this out in a tweet. And so this one headline from CNBC was back in 2018. And the headline reads, Trump is exaggerating Germany's reliance on Russia for energy. And then you fast forward to uh, July 2022. Russia is set to switch off the gas for work on a key pipeline. And Germany fears the worst. Yeah. Life comes at you quick, right? And there's actually a clip that floats around on Twitter every once in a while of Trump. Um, I don't know where. I think it was at the UN. Was that? I think it was at the UN. That makes that yeah. makes sense. And I mean, he's just going off on how Germany is at risk of being reliant on Russian energy, and you have all the the German uh, politicians, Parliament, I don't know what the fuck they call them, and they're sitting there like snickering and laughing. And Trump was 
on point on that um, when it came to it, it's funny because Trump was on point there, but then he was also so off base on American energy production. Like I remember talking to I had some friends in DOE uh, during Trump's administration and I'd be talking to him like, dude, what the, f like, where the fuck is he getting his information from? And they're like, look, man, we give him information and he just takes it off and says whatever. <laughs> he, doesn't. he doesn't listen to us. And so, um, it is kind of strange how he was just so on point. The with weird, that, but the weird love affair between the oil and gas business and Trump was the second oil would hit $50 a barrel. Trump was begging the Saudis to pump more. Yeah, right? he's like, I well, mean, prices have to come yeah, down. Yeah, he's like, like I want doing? low gasoline yeah, prices. Like, and, you know, <laughs> folks out in West Texas are, hey, man, just let me survive. Can yeah. I get a, I want to be able to eat an all yeah. soups burrito yeah, tonight. For sure. you know, just give me something. So, but stuff we do know a lot about. Let's get to what we're expert on. Shell had a job posting. Yeah, Shell had a job posting, uh, but not any, not any typical job posting. They're not looking for a geophysicist or a petroleum engineer, they are looking for a TikTok content creator. And so I had at least 50 people send me this uh, job posting because it was picked up in major headlines and uh, people were telling me that I should apply for this. What's funny is I would want to apply for it. Like it'd be a great piece of content to apply for it and then go, go in the interview. interview. Yeah, zero chance Shell would ever hire me to run their TikTok. But I think this plays into a bigger overall theme that we talk about here at Digital Wildcatters often, and that is oil and gas companies creating content to appeal to the newer generation. And I've talked about TikTok specifically. You know, I um, sat at uh, Namoga, New Mexico Oil and Gas Association, um, you know, six months ago or so. And, you know, these things are always interesting because you're talking to a room and it's a thousand people, but it's all oil and gas people. It's an echo chamber, right? right? And you're preaching to the choir. So one of the questions someone in the audience asked me is like, we hear you, we hear what you're saying, but how do we actually do that in execution and action? How do we reach millennials and Gen Z? And I said, you have to go to where they're hanging out. And I said, these places are TikTok, they're Snapchat, they're Reddit. And I think that these, you know, I bash on major companies. I think I might have talked about this on the show. I was speaking at Dallas Crude Association a couple months back and um, oil and gas operator sitting next to me of a large independent. I'm not going to say who it was, but everyone knows the name. And he's sitting there saying, I think the burden is on the majors to control the narrative and tell the story of the good in oil and gas and I was like, absolutely not. I was like, people fucking hate the majors. They go on Twitter, see when Chevron or Exxon makes a post or when BP makes a post, the comments are just people dogging on them and trashing them. No one cares what the majors have to say. So it's up to individuals in the industry um, to create content. And you go over to TikTok and that's happening. There's roughnecks that have one and a half million followers. Casing hands that have quarter million followers. These are all people that I follow. Pipeliners that have 100,000 followers and people are getting to learn about the industry from real people. And so I'd be interested to see where Shell actually takes their their TikTok, but I know it's gonna be the same old, same old, like there's, it's just gonna be corporate messaging and you're never gonna be able to get, a, like I would never be able to go do that because 
the post has to get approved through nine layers of bureaucracy. Right. <laughs> so, including four lawyers. <laughs> yeah, including but, four lawyers. You know, but I, I want to add one point to this because I've been working on a piece of content about why young people won't come into our industry. And I'll just open up Zoom rooms and, you know, 10 kids will show up and we'll sit around and talk and just doing a lot of fact finding. And an interesting story I heard, it was an engineer in in uh, Calgary who came on and just said, hey, let me give you an example. At university, my sophomore year, Suncor shows up, and they give a presentation talking about how to drill an oil well. 25 people show up, and it's a, and, and, you know, he was throwing shade at me. It was an old white guy, no offense, Chuck. And, you know, that's what we did. Junior year, same thing. Third year, my senior year, they title the, they title the, the speech – how we're using AI to image the subsurface. And they sent an Indian, 27-year-old Indian engineer who came out and just was like, opening line, he obviously wasn't a polished public speaker, but opening line was just, this is the coolest shit I've ever seen. And just was so passionate. (laughs) 500 people showed up for that presentation and people were just pouring in. Obviously people are texting, holy cow, you gotta get over here. Suncor supposedly had its largest recruiting class by like four or five X. So my point in telling that story is we're not that far off from having young people listen to us. We just can't be boring. It all comes down to storytelling. Yeah. And storytelling is so important in anything in life, but getting people excited and energized and oil and gas one, you know, oil and gas has struggled with that historically because you never had a like you never had a market yourself right you sold a commodity people are gonna like your barrel of oil is gonna sell like it doesn't need to be marketed right but now what you're having a market for is one talent to attract talent and you're having to story tell for acceptance in society and to get people to understand that the work that you do is important and so one historically we haven't had to do that so we kind of suck at it and then the people that are in this industry are very technical people engineers geophysicists geologists you know these types and very good within their discipline but may not be the best storytellers and they speak very matter matter of fact instead of thinking facts not emotions yeah this workshop same exact content same shit but different name, different branding. That's what that's what makes the difference. Different delivery. Yeah, different delivery. Exactly. So. All right. We have finger of the week, and uh, Jake actually unanimously voted for finger. We alluded to this earlier, but I'll go ahead and lay out the story. So last week, you know, when you were down with your prostate injury again, Jake had to co-host BDE with me. And the Richmond police listen to the podcast. And every morning I go get coffee. They're always in there. They're always giving me notes about this or that. And last week after BDE, they're like, man, who is that Jake guy? He was just so boring. Can we get, can we get Colin back? You and Colin at least tell a joke every once in a while. 
And so needless to say, Jake's comment was, I don't think the Richmond police are our demographic necessarily. <laughs> starts attacking, yeah, starts so, attacking so, our listeners. So, so Jake has given Vlad, who's a uh, one of the police officers down there, and one of our biggest fans has given uh, Vlad. So Vlad, sorry, but you, you won this week's Finger of the Week <laughs> from Jake. Finger of the Week. And just want to give a shout out to everyone that's listening today. Uh, John and Alexis, uh, great uh, comments here. Alexis had a uh, comment that was talking about content creation and said he knows firsthand doing this, showing the world content from a different perspective, shows something cool on Instagram. Yes. Yeah. And my thing is, is you don't need thousands of followers. You need one person to see it. And then that one person can go tell another person who can tell another person. That's how you get the compound effect. That's how you build a wall, one brick at a time. So love hearing that. Thanks for doing that. Uh, if I can ever help you out with content creation, uh, shoot me a message and we can bounce some ideas back and forth. Appreciate y'all checking out the show today, being in the comments, hanging out with me and Chuck. We will be back next week, same time, Tuesday, 10.30 a.m. Central. Chuck, you got anything to... Just real quick, uh, very special podcast I'm going to drop tomorrow. It's with James Casey. James Casey is the tight ends coach for the Cincinnati Bengals. He and I met because he played football at Rice. Literally the most compelling life story I've ever met, met from anyone. He's more driven than you are, Colin. And it all came about his sophomore year. He's sitting in biology class, gets a note, says, come to the office. He walks into the principal's office. His stepbrother's there. And his stepbrother says, hey, the trailer we were living in burned to the ground and mom was in it. And so James, literally all he had was what was in his backpack. And he could have so easily become alcoholic, drug addict, whatever. And he goes and he plays seven years in the NFL and he's at the Super Bowl yesterday. So it's it's a lot of geeky, nerdy football talk and draft, but it's also the most amazing life story. So check it out tomorrow when I drop. That may be the first podcast of yours I've listened to. So I'll (laughs) check it out. All right, guys. We'll catch you all next week. Thanks for tuning in.